you very much. We're looking at the I Am sayings in the Gospel according to John, and this morning is John chapter 15. John chapter 15, I Am the True Vine. Having grown up in my teenage years and early 20s listening to Major Ian Thomas uh, speak on the indwelling life of Christ, and then going to Cape and Ray and being principal there and still involved teaching with it. I was thinking as I was putting this message together, I think of the, all the passages in Scripture that I've probably heard taught on the most. John chapter 15 would have to be one of them for sure, for sure. John chapter 15, let me read it to you, the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, he says. My father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." We all know that different countries have different symbols. The national symbol of England is the lion. The lion is a symbol of pride and might, and it's said that it's identified with Richard I, Richard I, the Lionheart. The Western world has given the bear as the symbol for Russia. This is the unofficial symbol, however, and it's given to Russia by the Western world that considers Russia particularly uh, pertinent at this time, big, brutal, and clumsy. The national symbol of the USA, of course, we all know, is the bald eagle in contrast. The bald eagle was chosen because of its fierce beauty, its proud independence, symbolizing the strength and freedom of America. And the national symbol of China is the Great Wall or the Panda Bear. Now, we all know our national symbol for Australia, don't we? Featured on the Commonwealth coat of arms. Oh, I like it so much. I hope they don't change it one day. But anyway, like everything, it seems to be changing, doesn't it? With the kangaroo and emu, because the kangaroo and emu find it most difficult to go backwards. And so they are featured on our coat of arms. When we come to the nation of Israel... A little bit surprisingly, maybe, but the vine, the vine is one of the symbols, national symbols for Israel, a vine or vineyard. The background for that comes from Psalm 80, Psalm 80. Let me read it to you where the psalmist writes this. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. 
The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. The end of that, end of that verse in Psalm, Psalm 80 verse 10, as I was trying to picture in my mind was this, right? A vine that is so great, it says, that the mountains were covered with its shade. Isn't it an unusual picture in our minds to have mountains and this vine that covers, covers all the mountains and the shade of the, vi- of the vines covers the mountains. And then it goes on and says this, the mighty cedars with its branches. So these massive trees as well, the branches of the vine overshadow them. It's quite an unusual picture. God planted Israel as a farmer plants a vine with the expectation that the nation would bear great and beautiful produce. What kind of fruit was the nation to produce? Well, first of all, spiritual fruit, irrigated by the rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit, fertilized by his truth, cultivated by God's mercy and his judgments. Israel was to be a nation like no other nation on earth. God planted the vine and then he waited. He constantly observed his vine, looking for fruit of righteousness and holiness. Israel, God's elect, the smallest nation at the time, chosen to produce and display to the world the true way to live, honoring, worshipping, serving, obeying, loving God. By this display of right living, the world would be shaken out of its sinful state and want to put off ungodly practices, discard its false gods, and be drawn by the appeal of Israel's life that they also would come and want to worship God. That was God's plan. But, as we read the Old Testament, anything but that was produced. Listen to the prophets. Another message is proclaimed instead. Instead of the triumphant, joy-filled living, there is sorrow and lament. God's people frequently disappointed him. We saw that in our series on Isaiah last year. We saw that constant judgment and terrible things are happening that the nation is so sinful but then the hope as well that God is going to do something bring about a great change Isaiah described God as a husbandman a vine dresser who'd done everything everything necessary for this vine this nation to produce a bountiful harvest a pure and fruitful stock but when God looked He saw nothing but sour grapes, wild and bitter to the taste. Isaiah chapter 5, we looked at this. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it, says God. When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they, that they rain, no rain upon it. 
Here was Israel planted in the world to become a magnificent display of living in intimacy with the Lord, producing the fruit of salvation, truth and righteousness, showing to the world, you too can come into this blessing. Yet all it produced was wild, sour, bitter grapes. The nation failed miserably. God said, and we saw this, the fruit that you produce is of no value and worth. I chose the choicest vine, holy of pure stock, but now I consider it worthless. Jeremiah echoes this in chapter 2, verse 21. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Well, what do you do with wild vines? You take drastic action. You prune it. and You prune it hard. You drastically cut it back. It may even need replanting, perhaps, to produce a worthy crop. Well, as we also saw in Isaiah last, last year, all was not lost. God did not give up and just walk away and abandon us. The promise is given, says God, I shall come. I shall come and I shall replant the vine. Isaiah 27 verse 6. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And again in Isaiah 27. On the day a pleasant vineyard, sing about it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, I guard it night and day so that no one can harm it. How was that vision that Isaiah had fulfilled in the replanting of a vine? Jesus. Jesus. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine grower. I want us to, for just a moment, imagine the scene that takes place as, John, as Jesus says these words in John chapter 15. At the end of John chapter 14, the disciples have celebrated the Passover with Jesus, the Passover meal. And Jesus says to his disciples, Judas has already left by the way, rise, let us be on our way. And then at the beginning of chapter 18, it says these words, After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden. So it seems to be that chapters 15, 16 and 17 of John are Jesus' words as he is on the move with his disciples. They've sung a hymn together in the upper room there and he says, Rise, let us go. And then as they make their way towards the Kidron Valley, at certain places Jesus stops and he gives them teaching. The group of men left the upper room. They walked the stepped road that led down over the Cheesemakers Valley into the temple court, across the temple court and through to the eastern gate toward the Kidron Valley. And there, right above the eastern gate, now sealed up, carved out of stone was Israel's national symbol a vine a vine 
This carving was something to look at. It was covered in gold leaf. The branches curve up to a height of seven meters and then sweep low down to nearly touching the ground. Laden with great bunches of golden grapes. It was a full moon that night because we know the Passover had just been celebrated. And so possibly the light of the moon catching these golden grapes above this gate would have been a magnificent, magnificent sight. I wonder if Jesus stopped there at the gate, looking up at this bunch of grapes carved out of stone and covered now with gold leaf, and he thought to himself, of all the spiritual fruit the nation of Israel should have produced, all the attention that God had given it, all the care that he had given it, I wonder if the disciples stopped for a moment as they're now looking at Jesus, as he is looking up, and then their eye is caught up as well, and they hear Jesus say these words, I am the vine, the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. Jesus is the new vine that God has planted, planted by our Heavenly Father, Israel as a nation has been reduced to just one remaining branch. Everything else has been cut off, pruned, cut away. And that one remaining branch is Jesus. And from him, all spiritual life would come. Everything that God had expected of the nation now will be fulfilled in and through his son love truth righteousness everything found not in a nation of people but in one person as we've just been celebrating in christ we find forgiveness for our sin in christ we find mercy instead of wrath in Christ, we find joy to replace our sorrow. In Christ, we find strength in our weakness. In Christ, we find truth, not lies and deceit. In Christ, we find love like no other. In Christ, we find light to dispel the darkness. In Christ, we find a presence that will never leave us or forsake us. And in Christ, we find the way to the Father. Jesus' invitation to you and me is not that we come and taste and then we depart, we leave, but we stay, we remain, we abide, and we produce the fruit of Christ's likeness as Christ lives in us. For his life will never run out, never dry up, as Jones mentioned, it's eternal life. It goes on forever. Jesus is the vine, and when we come to him, he grafts us into himself. We receive from him his divine nature. That's everything that we need for life and godliness. So there, maybe it was around midnight. The disciples gather. They've just got the light of the moon that's shining on this bunch of grapes above the gate there. And Jesus tells his disciples, 
Israel's been a failure, a massive failure. But God's plan and purpose will never fail. For God has planted a new vine. And this new vine will be a blessing for the whole world. Hey, it reminds us of our verse that we started off with, doesn't it? Of this vine that is so great that its shade covers the mountains. And Jesus says to the disciples and he says to you and me, our responsibility is to abide in him. Isaiah's vision of a new vineyard shoots from the vine going out to all parts of the earth is fulfilled in Jesus. The moment that you and I, we put our faith in him, a wonderful work occurs. It's described as the exchange life where we give our life to Christ and Christ gives his life to us. That he might live in us and through us a life that we can never live in and of ourselves. A spiritual intimacy of two separate persons but now so united that God looks at us and he sees us as one he sees Christ and he sees us two separate but one united so closely Jesus says we might try to produce the fruit that he wants of that and we might try to do it in our own strength we might try, we strain, we struggle to become more like Jesus. But Jesus says, you can do nothing if you do not abide in me. Verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. The fruit that Israel was to produce now is produced in and through the life of Christ. Righteousness, truth, faithfulness. Or as Paul would later go on to say to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self under control. That's the life that God wants of you and me every moment of our lives. And that if every Christian, imagine if every Christian in the world today living in surrender to God, was producing that life in and through them. How the world would be so different. The world would look at us and go, there is love, there is joy. There's that peace that I've been longing for. There's that faithfulness, that goodness, that gentleness, that self under control. How do we do this? Remain in Jesus. Abide in him. Be in a continuous living relationship with him. Now, we're going to get to a couple of these verses that seem a little bit difficult to understand. But really, I think Jesus makes them so clear. Verse 2. Verse 2. Jesus says this. He removes, talking about God, he removes every branch in me that does that bears no fruit. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, what are we, uh, what are we to make of that verse? Is, it say, is Jesus saying, right, if we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to have his way in us and through us, if the life of Christ isn't being manifest in our lives, that Jesus is going to, or God the Father is going to remove us. He's going to take us out. 
if that's the intent of this verse, that God is going to take us away, then that means that fruitless believers are disciplined by death. And Paul does make reference to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 11 and John in 1 John 5. But I don't think that that's the meaning here, and I'll explain why. Everywhere else in Scripture, everywhere else except in just one instance, the word here, remove, is translated as lifted up. The Jews, and the, the Greek word is iro, the Jews iro stones. They lifted up stones to stone Jesus. The sick iro, they took up their beds. They lifted up their beds. The boat in which Paul and the others were in was iro, was lifted up and taken into a larger boat so that they could find shelter from the storm. On the hands of angels, the Son of Man will be Iro, will be lifted up, that he will not dash his foot against a stone. The only reference that we have where this word is used and is not translated as lifted up, but ta uh, translated as taken away, is when John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in fact, you could easily put in there, instead of takes away, lifts up. Behold the Lamb of God who lifts up the sin of the world. Well, what sense is that? What's well, referring to the animals in the Old Testament that were lifted up as a sacrifice to be put on the altar for the sins of the people. It could be translated... Behold the Lamb of God who lifts up the sin of the world. The other important thing is that in the day of Jesus, vines were not grown as they are today on high trellises. They were grown much closer to the ground, just high enough so the grapes wouldn't touch the ground. If the grapes fell on the ground or touched the ground, then they would probably go bad in contact with the soil. And being so low to the ground, it meant that the vine dresser had a daily task of inspecting the vines and seeing if any of the bunches of grapes had actually fallen low enough to touch the soil. If so, he needed to lift them up to stop the bunch from going bad. Jesus is saying here that if we are in a place where we are not producing very much fruit he will not let us remain where we are he will lift us up he will put us in a place where we can produce more fruit and be a blessing to others so this verse is not to be th read as some kind of threat. If I'm not producing any fruit, if the life of Christ isn't seen in me, then I have to look out because God's going to remove me. God's going to take me away. No, this is a verse of blessing where Jesus says, I'm going to lift you up because what I want is for you to be in the place where you are producing the most fruit that you can and be a blessing to others. 
just on a personal note here. It kind of struck me as I was thinking about this this week. I found it really hard to leave Cape and Ray as a principal. I'd been there 12 years. I loved the ministry. And I came up and Pastor Peter spoke to me one day and he said, Neil, he said, God has brought you back to Brisbane so that you can be a blessing to more people than you were down there. Isn't it funny? Sometimes somebody says a word to us and it stays with us. We never forget that. I've never told Peter. I've never reminded him of that. That's 10 years ago now. And I hold on to that verse. I say, God, may I be that blessing. May I be that blessing. Maybe the, the reason, one of the reasons was, right, you brought me back to Brisbane is that you might use me. Go, and God will do that for you. If you're in a place where God knows that you will be even a greater blessing to other people somewhere else, he will move you to that place. He will lift you up to produce more fruit in your life. We're not to think of it. Oh, Lord, maybe I'm going to do something bad. Maybe I'm going to sin really bad and be condemned forever and you're just going to remove me and take me away. No, no, no. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sins, past, present, future, all are forgiven. We are to find the freedom that where we are planted, we can grow the most. What about verse 6? Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers, and such branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, here again, here's one of these verses I think some, some people, right, they misinterpret. There's a good friend of mine down in Barrel, and I've talked with him many times. But he has this fear that if I'm not living in the most intimate relationship with Jesus, that I might end up in hell. Is that what Jesus is saying? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And the fire here is not the fire of hell, but the fire of judgment. It's a bad hermeneutic to take a word and to have one meaning of that word and to apply that meaning to every time it's mentioned through Scripture because, you know, God is said to be like fire. God is fire. So what, God is hell? No, no, of course not. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying this, that the good works that you and I produce in and of our own effort not spirit-inspired, not spirit-empowered. Good works, yeah, for sure. In the end, will be thrown into the fire. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He describes them as wood, hay, and stubble. Hey, Lord, they're great works. They're good works. Aren't you happy with them? And God says, but that's not what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to be dependent on me. I wanted my spirit to live in you and through you, and for that to produce good works. For otherwise you are producing that and you are actually producing nothing. The result is a not a loss of our salvation, but of rewards, of rewards. Back to verse 2. Two clauses here that both share the same conclusion. Every branch of mine that 
bears no fruit, he lifts up. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. And both of these have the same conclusion that we bear more fruit. It makes no sense to read every branch that bears no fruit, that Jesus takes it away, that it bear more fruit that bears no fruit. The first clause must have the same conclusion as the second, is that God's purpose for you and me is that we bear more fruit. If we failed, if we faltered, what do we do? We go back to abiding in Jesus. We live in that continuous relationship with him. He's promised he lifts us up out of the miry clay. What about this pruning that God does? Well, Hebrews, writer to the Hebrews tells us that God prunes us because he needs to discipline us. We are his loving children, and you all know, right, if you do not discipline a child, you know how it's going to grow up. Certainly not into a mature adult. My sister, who's deputy principal of a school, says most of her day is spent, and she's single like me, teaching parents how to be a parent. That's what she says. It's not dealing with the kids. She says the kids are great, right? It's teaching parents how to be a parent. Recently on the news, I I was encouraged by these words, a deputy commissioner of our police who said this, and I thought at last someone's come out and actually said the words. The trouble with some of these youth, he says, that are stealing cars, you know, and, and trying to escape from the police, he said these words, there is no discipline at home. Oh, let's say it for what it is, shall we? Really? So, does God discipline us? Of course he does, because he wants us to become more Christ-like. You and I, we do experience setbacks, challenges, difficult times. But the tallest trees always grow in the valleys. Part of God's love and care for you and for me is that we do not become become undisciplined, spoiled brats. And even through those difficult times, God's love is right there. The command Jesus gives to you and me is that we abide in him. We trust, we trust in his love. We believe in it, we rely on him, we make him the solid rock of our lives. And this wonderful, wonderful truth that's expressed in John chapter 15, the mystery that was withheld from the Gentiles but now has been made known, says Paul, is that when you give your life to Christ, Christ comes and lives in you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. At the Bible school, I would hear testimonies of students four, oh, they would say when they were four or five years of age, that they were sitting by their bed or next to a parent or something, and their parent, and they'd say, I want to give my life to Jesus. And the parent would say, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for all that you've done wrong, and you need to ask him into your life. And many times I've heard this of students who are saying at four, five, six years of age, they invited Jesus into their life. Let's think about that for a moment. The God 
of all splendor, of all glory in the universe, comes to live in a young child. That's extraordinary. But of course, not only a young child, anybody who comes in surrender and says, Lord, I give my life to you, can know and experience the indwelling life of Christ, can be that branch drawing from the vine constantly a life that only he can produce. Listen to these words. Jesus is not looking to find a place worthy of his presence. Jesus is looking for a place, uh, sorry, Jesus is wanting to make a place worthy of his presence. Jesus is not looking to find a place worthy of his presence, but to make a place worthy of his presence. A place where the fruit of his life might be on permanent display. We abide as we trust him. We obey him. We trust his love and his love flows through us to those that probably in and of ourselves we would never love. But he loves through us. We obey his word, the prompting of his spirit, and the promise is sure, Jesus says, my joy shall be in you, and my joy shall be complete. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, what a great passage. Lord, I never, ever tire of reading this. By that simple act of our will, of handing over the control of our life to you, Lord, you come and live in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. For I've been crucified, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. Oh, Lord, we don't need to ask you to live in us. Lord, you already are in us if we've given our lives to you. But what we do ask is that you might live in us and through us in a greater measure, that more fruit might be produced in us and through us, that others might be blessed and in the process glorify you. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.
now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.